I'm going to read um, a little bit more than just is what listed in your programs. I want you to have a little context for, for this last uh, line. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you always even to the end of the age. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be honoring to you. Amen. <clears throat> Throughout my ministry experience, both in the U.S. and overseas, I have learned that the beginning of sharing our faith with another is to be present in their life. And this morning, my question is, what is the most important promise in Scripture? The writer of the book of Matthew reveals his take on this question in the first and last chapters of the Gospel. In Matthew 1, he quotes Isaiah, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Then in Matthew 28, he quotes Jesus, the one who Isaiah spoke about, saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. In today's passage, Jesus makes a big promise to his disciples that he will be with them always in their joy and in their pain. And not just those disciples who are gathered together in this mountain, but every disciple who has followed Jesus since, including each of you. And in every place and time in the future as well, in the end, isn't God's presence what we really want? Let me put it this way. If you had to choose between God conforming every life experience to your will or having God alongside you for every experience of life, which would you choose? It's a challenging question. I thought about this question during a recent conversation I had with one of my semi-Christian friends. I'm so discouraged by the state of the world, she said. You know, when I pray, I always add my prayers for world peace. But lately, I've lost confidence in that prayer. I don't think God is going to bring peace to the world. She was disheartened by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, thinking a civilized country like Russia would not stoop 
to expanding its borders through naked aggression. Maybe all of us feel that way. But I can't blame her. If God can't control the marginally Christian countries of the world, what is God capable of? We talked about what prayer accomplishments. If we should expect God to reorder the world to suit our desires, or if God's presence through the circumstances of our lives is what we can expect. When we think about these things we most deeply long for, it can be hard to accept that God's power is in Jesus' presence. In the words of C.S. Lewis, God doesn't conform the world to the way we want it to be. Rather, God uses the world to form us into what God wants us to be. But God is through it all with us. Was that promise enough for her? Is it enough for us? At the Presbyterian Church I attend in Laguna Beach, I often work with people who are grieving the loss of a loved one. I find that while people grieve very differently, what most need more than anything else as they go through grief is empathy. People in solidarity with them. Talk to many who have endured and passed through grief, and they will say, I can't imagine going through that without God. Or I can't imagine going through that without Robert or Lisa or Dan. On the other hand, those who are experiencing joy also long to have someone experience it with. The world is constantly confronting us with moments of joy and pain. And what we desire most is to have somebody to share that with. In this passage, Jesus is promising his presence to the disciples and those who are on mission with him until the end of history. And not just the first century or in the present, but into the future until Jesus comes back to tie up history. That means you who are disciples of Jesus, who are on mission with him, can count on his presence to the end of your earthly life and then beyond. I was at a birthday celebration for an 80-year-old last weekend. Her satisfaction with life is the realization that she has endured and overcome much in life and has done so with the presence of others alongside her. Think back to your most meaningful experience, good and bad. What is it you remember? Is it the actual activity, or is it the people who went through it with you? We are wired to need God and others to be whole. It's often said that when we are experiencing the presence of another in grief, our grief is halved. At the other pole, such presence of others doubles our joy. That is one reason why the pandemic was so difficult for many of us. I don't know about you, but the lack of human interaction during that time just seemed to drain the life out of me. Many of us are still recovering from that experience. But in the end, Jesus knows what his disciples need. 
Notice that he doesn't promise success or invincibility or wealth or power. In fact, he says in John's Gospel, without me you can do nothing. Just, he just promises his presence. It's what we need the most. Let me tell you a story about God's presence. Some of you will remember the totalitarian rule of the Soviet Union in the second half of the 20th century. It was a dark time for the Eastern European countries of Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, Romania, and others who had been liberated by the Soviet Union after World War II. The citizens of those lands were tightly controlled. The state owned all the means of production. The church had been compromised. Freedom of press, speech, assembly, and movement were all banned. Powerful secret police watched everything, arresting those who they thought were any threat to the regimes. The border that separated these countries from the West was called the Iron Curtain. I remember going there several years later, driving down the road, and just seeing the tree trunks, because all the branches had been cut off for firewood, because the communist system let everyone be dramatically poor, uh, except those who were connected somehow to the government. One of the most oppressive and ruthless Soviet leaders was Nicolae Ceausescu of Romania. His corrupt rule kept tight control on the populace and tried to prevent all outside influence from coming into the country. The communist system had reduced people without government connections to crushing poverty. This difficult and dangerous situation, however, did not dissuade Christians from pursuing the Great Commission. In Romania, they organized a plan whereby several mission organizations would smuggle Bibles and Christian literature across the border, and others would make contact to train and support local leaders as they developed underground churches. The mission organization I would join several years later, CRM, agreed to send missionaries across the border to meet secretly with groups of Christian leaders for Bible training and encouragement. Here's how it worked. Romanian Christians would identify a location where they could safely meet and communicate in code the town and the contact person to the missionary organization located in Vienna, Austria. Secrecy was paramount because if discovered by the secret police, those in attendance could be imprisoned or even shot. The missionaries who were to attend the meeting were given information about their destination and how to rendezvous with the contact person on a wizard calculator. This was a precursor to the PC that we all know well now. <clears throat> to preserve secrecy, the information was timed to be revealed only after the missionaries had passed through the security checkpoint at the Hungarian frontier, which was the boundary of the Iron Curtain. This information only appeared after that time 
because at the frontier, police would board the train, check passports, search passengers, and remove any passengers they considered suspicious. After the missionaries had safely passed through the frontier, the wizard would reveal how to locate the contact person who would take them to the meeting. This is the testimony of one of those missionaries. The first time I boarded a train, my mission was to Timisoara, a major city in Western Romania. It was winter, early in the morning, and quite cold. After about a half an hour, the train slowed to a stop in a very remote area. This must be the frontier, my colleague said. I felt my body tensing up. A short time later, a policeman looked into our compartment, but then kept walking. I was so relieved. But minutes later, much to my dismay, another policeman stopped, threw back our compartment door, and entered and gruffly asked us for our identification. Where from? He asked. Where going? What business you have? We said that we were going to meet some business associates in Timisoara, keeping it vague. He looked at, at our satchels, eyed the calculator, and abruptly left. There must be others to harass, I thought. Eight hours later, shortly before we reached our destination, a message appeared on the wizard. When you arrive at the station, walk outside to the central fountain and wait for someone to pass by and mention the code phrase, Jesus is Lord. Follow that person. Walk at least 10 yards behind him. He will take you to a hotel where you will check in and wait for him to return later in the evening. By the time we reached the station, it was late afternoon, almost dark and very cold. We found the fountain and waited, stamping our feet in the snow to keep warm. After about 20 minutes, a well-bundled-up person walked by and said the code word, and we followed. He kept a rapid pace. It was quite a long walk, and I was quite cold by the time we reached the hotel. Our contact waited long enough to find out our room number and then left us. Later that night, he returned, and we followed him a short way to the basement of a nondescript building. We went down the stairs in the dark, went through a door to the interior, and after the door closed, a single 40-watt bulb the brightest allowed in Romania, was switched on. There were about a dozen men present, smiling and eager to meet us. In that moment, the dark, cold, foreboding feelings I had had since boarding the train were replaced by the warm welcome and fellowship of these brave leaders. We talked and we taught late into the night, and I knew that Jesus was present among us. The experience he describes was repeated in a similar fashion over and over again, year after year. During those years, these missionaries developed deep and abiding relationships with those they were teaching. Their regular presence lifted the spirits of these leaders 
and represented the presence of Jesus to them. Several years later, in 1989, simultaneous with the collapse of the Iron Curtain across Eastern Europe, Romanians rose up and threw off their oppressors, executing Ceausescu and his diabolical wife. Still, no one knew what would happen after that. Who would, who would lead the country? Would the secret police still exist? Who would they be loyal to? How would the situation in Romania change? My friend's testimony continues. We had no idea what would happen on our first return after the re revolution. Would our meetings still be held in secret? What would it be like passing through the frontier? Well, at the frontier, we encountered one of the policemen we had seen on numerous previous trips. As before, he came into our compartment and began to ask questions. Who we were, where we were headed, what business did we have? Then he asked us a surprising question. You Christian? I swallowed hard and admitted I was, wondering how he had found out and what would happen now. How did you know, my colleague asked. I know. I have always known, grunted the policeman. But how? You have bright eyes. Then he smiled. Jesus had been with them all along the way. Understanding that we are recipients of this important promise should give us hope and inspire us to want to be present in the lives of others. Present until they can understand the promise of Jesus themselves. You don't have to baptize or teach to be a disciple of Jesus, although these things are important. But first, you need to be present in the life of another. It's a naturally human thing to do. Who outside of this community might that be for you? Take a moment right now. Close your eyes. Think about the past several weeks. Have you come across someone who could use their presence, your, your presence in their life? It could be a neighbor, a sibling, an in-law, or a colleague at work. Who is it? Make plans to explore that relationship. What I have learned during my missionary life is that being present in the life of another is the first step in helping that person see the promise of Jesus. From the first to the last chapter, Matthew shows Jesus living out the promise of God's presence in the lives of his disciples and extending that presence through the Holy Spirit to us today and into the future. There is no greater promise than that.
Amen. Holy One, we give thanks for your presence in our lives. And we pray that uh, you will help us take that presence, that comfort, that inspiration, and invest it in others. Help us let them know that Jesus is real and Jesus wants to be a present in their life. I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.